Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other, and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you guys. We are going to be looking at um, some stuff in Judges in a little bit, which is always fun. But just wondered, has anyone out there ever been in a conversation when a child has also been there? Yes. Probably lots of you. Have you ever had that experience where you're talking about something with this other person? Perhaps you're saying things that feel really important and weighty, and and then you're, the kid nearby pipes up and is like, oh, what does that mean? And then you're like, oh. Um, you know, maybe it's the, you just use the word ironic. Like, oh, daddy, what does ironic mean? And you're like, oh, uh, rain on your wedding day? Um, <laughs> that kind of thing. But you, know, you know that feeling of that sort of the existential dread of, oh, actually, just, this is all a ruse. I don't know what I'm talking about about anything. And, you know, all these big fancy words I might want to use, I just really have no idea what they are. Maybe that's just me. But uh, that does happen more often than I'd like. But also, occasionally, it happens where the other way around. And you're having a conversation. And uh, we had this instance once where Ben pipes up. And I have no idea what we we're talking about. But he's like, oh, Daddy, what's a paradox? And uh, after that initial, like, oh, it's like, oh, actually, son, it's, you know, when there's two things that seemingly uh, contradict each other, but actually both true at the same time. And then inside, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> Can we, did someone record that? Uh, can I just bottle up that feeling? But, um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I say that for no other reason than I wanted to talk about paradoxes a little bit today. <laughs> and just that idea that actually two things that are seemingly opposite can be true at the same time. And we see this in the world around us all the time. In fact, even just the very fabric of reality and the nature of light. Have we got any quantum physicists in the room? What is light? What is light? What is it made up of? It's a particle and a wave. So it's both a wave and it is a particle. And apparently, those two things, the properties of those things are such that they, sh they should be mutually exclusive. Like, it, the thing that makes you a, a, a particle is that you exist in one specific spot. But the thing that makes you a wave is that you, you're moving. That's as technical as I can get with that. But it's, it's the idea that two things that are seemingly contradictory are actually true at the same time. We see it even in our personalities, probably, in lots of ways. In, you know, just that sense of, oh, I kind of, I really want to belong. I really want to be connected somewhere. But I also want to be free. I don't want to be tied down. I want to want to be able to go wherever. Or, you know, similarly, that sense of uh, just um, I've forgotten the other example. Never mind. Um, <laughs> but that that idea, you know, two things that feel against each other but are actually the same. Theologically, there's so many. Um, if we could go through scripture and find loads of different paradoxes, but actually, probably the most obvious would be the nature of the Trinity, the fact that God is one. There is no other God but God. He is one, but he's also three distinct persons. And, it, and, and those two things initially don't feel like they would sit next to each other, but they do. And I think often, and we, this is a word we use a lot in church, we talk about the idea of tension, the idea of um, 
just holding a couple of things together. And I think it's really important. I think it's really important for us just as we, we live our lives, but especially when it comes to faith, because so often we can really want to have things sorted, want to have the right answer and have it fixed. And so the idea of, um, of tension feels hard because it actually suggests difficulty. It suggests conflict. And so there's this, this thing within us. It's just, oh, I just need to resolve that as soon as possible. But actually, the beautiful thing about tension is that it requires relationship. It requires connection. You know, for, for two things to be in tension, they have to be held at either end. And so whilst there might be this pull in us to just, oh, I just need to fix this thing, like actually um, in holding it together, we are, we're necessitating relationship. We're necessitating connection. And so that, that sort of um, pull to sort of fix it all, sort it all out, actually doesn't serve us as well in the long run. And so um, that's probably why paradoxes exist that actually they are by nature unsolvable. And that's the point, that we actually have to hold them together and we have to hold them with each other. And it encourages conversation and dialogue and connection and all those wonderful things that, you know, when you look at God, that's who he is. He is relationship. He is connection. And it is wonderful. And, the, yeah, there's, there's many different... Uh, we could probably do a series on paradoxes, but um, I wanted to look at one in particular this morning. And it's this idea... Maybe this isn't a paradox that's ever been drawn out before, but I was thinking about it. It's this idea that, on the one hand, God wants us to bring all the strength that we have. And on the other, he says, the weaker, the better. God wants us to bring all the strength that we have, the weaker, the better. And those are sort of drawing from, quoting particularly from a couple of Bible verses, that second one, the idea of weaker being better is from 2 Corinthians 12, which we'll, we'll look at later. But the first is actually, it's a quote from Judges 6, and it's from the story of Gideon. So that's what we're going to look at. I um, haven't put all the Judges slides on the screen, so you have verbal permission to get your Bible out. Um, also, to get your phone out, if you have one with your Bible on it, I'm going to be reading from the NLT. So, we, uh, yeah, we're going to go through it in chunks, so it'll be helpful for you to have it in front of you. So, um, the book of Judges, is uh, it comes before uh, 1 Samuel, it comes uh, after Joshua. So, it's the, in this interim where the Israelites are getting settled in the promised land and there's just this kind of constant pendulum swing of they get in trouble and God sorts them out and sends a leader to them. And so in Judges 6, they're, um, they're in this spot where they're being harassed by this group called the Midianites. And these, these guys are just, um, just ravaging their crops. They're just coming and ruining them. And basically, the Israelites are having to, to hide and they're having to um, just be just distant and they're living in constant fear of the Midianites. They're getting, getting bullied, basically, by these other people. And so they cry out to God for help. And uh, God, as he does, he responds to their cry, and he sends them a prophet who says that, that uh, God's going to help them. And then after that, he, he calls Gideon, and uh, he says he's going to use Gideon to deliver his people. So we're going to uh, pick up from um, verse 11. Judges 6, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Ebiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. 
the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So we're, we're going to journey through Judges 6, and we're going to see what it looks like for Gideon to go from the wine press to the battlefield, to go from this person who is hiding to someone who God calls and uh, who strengthens and actually gets him ready for battle. And this is, this is all probably quite famous to you. I imagine if you might have heard talks on this before, but the, um, we start at the very fundamental point of God calls out Gideon's identity. Uh, through this angel, the angel that says to him, mighty hero, mighty man of valor, it gets translated elsewhere. And this idea that this guy that's hiding gets spoken to as if um, for who he is, for how he's seen in heaven. That actually God says, you are not someone who's scared. You are someone who is mighty. You are a hero. You're a man of valor. And I think the initial lesson here is, is we need to believe what God says about us. Like if we're going to step into anything that he's called us to, we need to believe what he says about us. And so often the, the descriptions that we receive from others but probably more often the descriptions that we hold for ourselves run in contradiction to how God sees us. But the reality is that you are known in heaven and there, um, God loves you. You're his child. He has called you. He has good things for you. And he wants to speak these over us. And if right at the very start, if we don't agree with that, then we're not going to stay in that wine press. So he's, uh, Gideon's told who he is. He's told he's a mighty man. And um. And then the second thing that happens is that God gives Gideon a mission. He gives him a calling. He's like, Gideon, I'm going to use you to save Israel. I'm going to use you to save my people. And we all need that. We all need that sense of mission, that sense of calling. And the great thing is we all have it. You know, we talked about it a few weeks ago, didn't we? The idea that um, the Great Commission, that all of us have been commissioned to go into the world and extend God's kingdom, make disciples of all nations. And this mission gives us a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. And so, again, if Gideon needs to know who he is, and he needs to go know what he's for so he can start moving towards it. And uh, it was in this little section in verse 14 where we had that quote where God tells him to bring all the strength that he has. So, Gideon, this is who you are. This is what you're like. This is what I've called you to do, and I need you to bring everything that you've got. I need you to bring it all because, actually, this thing is impossible. The Midianites are absolutely ravaging you, and I'm telling you that you're going to beat them as if there's only one of them. That's impossible. But God says, you need to get up, you need to go, you need to take all your strength. And the amazing thing is, like with Jesus at the Great Commission, God's like, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. You know, we looked at that on Ascension Sunday, didn't we? The idea that Jesus had to... Um, ascend into heaven so that the spirit will come down so the spirit will be with us so that the impossible task becomes possible so Gideon knows who he is he's been sent on a mission that God's going to be with him that is true for me and it's true for you 
Then the next section, 17 to 24. Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat and with a basket of flour, he baked some bread without yeast. Then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. Then the angel said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was an angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Ophrah in the land of the clan of Abiezer to this day. So the next stage in, in Gideon's sort of readying and his, in his getting stronger is he gets strengthened by God's miraculous intervention. And this, uh, for Gideon, it happens in the form of, of a commission by fire. And so in very similar to how Moses was commissioned by the burning bush, like actually God's like proving himself to Gideon by this miraculous cooking of food. I'm sure there's some lots of significance as to why the food, why the broth, all that kind of stuff. But um, the point for this morning is that like God's actually giving Gideon an experience of his power. You know, he's, he's got this impossible task. God said, it's going to happen. I'm going to be with you. But that's only going to happen because, because, because of who God is. And God proves it to him and says, look, I'm, I'm confirming my call to you. And again, thinking about the New Testament and thinking about our great commission, we see that right away through the book of Acts, don't we? That, that the Spirit falls and God um, send, puts signs in the heavens on earth and wonders on the earth below to confirm that the gospel that the, the guys are preaching is true and is real. And, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but um, when we see God move, we realize that he is powerful, that he cares. When, when those miraculous things happen, when those testimonies that we share with one another um, come forth out of our lips, we strengthen ourselves and we, we agree with what God's called us to do because we realize that God is who he says he is, that he is mighty, that he is strong, and that he cares. He's present and active. So Gideon gets this confidence in his commission, but also gets to experience a bit more of what God's like. And then it carries on. Verse 25. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Early next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. 
But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is God, is a God, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. And a lot of this story hopefully speaks for itself, but I think the, the thing that I took away from this is actually as Gideon's progressing towards this call that God's put in his life, he has to start where he's at. You know, Jesus says that those who are faithful with, with little will be given much. And this is, I don't know if it's a test or not, but it's, it's certainly we, we get it. You could see it. Maybe, maybe God's testing Gideon out, seeing what he's like. But actually, this is an opportunity before he steps into that big picture, miraculous, going to save the world. Actually, what's going on at home? What do you need to sort out in your own backyard? And before Gideon could step on the battlefield, he had to tear down the idols in his father's house. And again, that's so true for us. That we have this calling to the world, we have this calling to out there. We, there's probably dreams and visions that we're all carrying, that we're all walking in day to day. And it's really easy to get excited about that big picture stuff, and we should. But actually, step one is what's going on at home. Where are the idols that we need to tear down and actually chop up and use as fuel as worship to God instead? Like, what are those things? I'm sure we all know what they are. But and so and Gideon he responds to that he he does it a little bit reluctantly he does it, you know he does it at night but he does it and he's like actually you know what I'm going to purify myself I'm going to remove the contamination that is in my household and I'm going to I'm going to choose you God I'm going to move towards your plans and your purposes and so I think probably if you have a strong sense of calling which I hope is everyone I think the first first step is okay God what's next what's next. And, ask, and be really open and honest with, in particular, God, what's next with me? What's next in my house and in my heart? And then the final bit of chapter six. Soon after, um, go from this 34. Uh, soon afterwards the, armies, afterwards, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon, he blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. He also sent messages through Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors, and all of them responded. Then Gideon said to God, if you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece for one more time, one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night, God did as Gideon asked. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. And so we... Um, Gideon still needs a little bit more encouragement, and we're going to come back to that a little bit. But um, actually, I think this section is kind of, we've reached the high point. In that verse 34, where it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and people came to him. So God's, he's, 
God's told him who he is. He's given a mission and a calling. He's, um, he's confirmed it supernaturally. He has asked Gideon to respond with purity and holiness. And then, um, then he fills Gideon with his spirit. The spirit of the Lord takes possession of him. And actually, at this moment, Gideon becomes a leader. Men who are hiding come to him and get ready for battle. And again, this, this mirrors so clearly what happens with us with the Great Commission and with the, the church at Acts. And that Jesus tells us to go, and then he sends his spirit at Pentecost. And we are full, and we are filled. And actually, we are. And at this point, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. And hopefully, hopefully, we've got a lot of Gideons in the room. A lot of people that, yes, we know about the Great Commission, but also there's a sense of personal commission. Like, I know what I'm called to. I know what I'm supposed to give my life to. Maybe that's within my job. Maybe that's community projects that I have. Maybe that's with my family. Maybe that's all sorts of different things. But I've got a sense of calling. And, um, and actually, God, want, God has filled you with his spirit. You have everything you need. You have everything you need to step into that. And um, and actually, the wonderful thing is, even if you don't, even if you're not at that point, like wherever you feel like you're at on that journey, even if you're still hiding in the wine press, we see through this story that actually God, wherever we are, he can, he can pick us up and he can train us and he can strengthen us and he's going to fill us with his spirit and he's going to send us out and he's going to use us to extend his kingdom and he's going to use us to do those, those mighty works that he planned in advance for us, every single one of us. And I love it. I love this story because it gives me confidence in that. It makes me feel bold. It makes me feel strong. It makes me feel like, yes, God, let's go. And I love that. But I also love what happens next. And I love that actually God uses Gideon primarily to show Gideon that he doesn't need him. Let's read about it. Judges 7. So this is, this is our kind of tension point, turning point. So Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Harod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. Then the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave the mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who went, who were willing to fight. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cut water in their hands and lap it with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Does anyone in history ever do that? Like literally, anyway. Um, only 300 of the men drank with their hands and all the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. Then the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory. So we have this, we've kind of had this whole chapter of God building uh, Gideon up and putting him in control of the army. And then just within a few verses, he's like, oh, that, that 30,000 strong thing that you've amassed, let's chop it into a third. And then let's chop it down so you've actually, I think I double-checked my maths on this, you've only got 1% of your army left. Like, that's a pretty significant drop against an enemy that they're really scared of. So God um, absolutely just cuts Gideon's strength right down. And then, um, and then actually, I'm not going to read it because I want to get through a few things, but 
the story continues where um, God tells Gideon to go and listen to the camp on the night before battle. And he hears the Midianites over talk, uh, talking about dreams that they've had, where the, where the God of Israel comes in and, and destroys them. So there's, there's fear in the camp already. And then when it comes to the actual battle, Gideon gets his people and uh, they get ready to charge. And he's split them up into three. There's a, three lots of 100. And then and they run at the Midianites. And then they blow a horn and they smash a jar and they wave a candle around. And with that, God defeats the entire Midianite army. This army that had been totally wrecking them is defeated by a minuscule army who are blowing horns and waving candles. And God does it because he's like, this isn't about you guys. I'm the strong one here. I'm the one that's going to rescue you. I need you in it. I need you part of it. But it's my strength and it's my power. And so I think coming back to us, like God loves our strength, but he also loves our weakness. And so like he calls us to love him with everything, with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, to love others the same. He calls us to live as Jesus did and, and, and only see what we do the Father doing and, and submit everything to the will of the Father, like give it all to him. But also, like God said in Exodus, I'll fight for you. You only need to be still. God loves our, God loves our strength, but he also loves our weakness. And, and it's just, it's amazing that we get to, to participate because um, it's just wonderful. So Gideon's had this experience where he, uh, he's been built up, he was, he was afraid and he's made strong. And then he learns actually where true strength comes from and he learns uh, how to trust in God. But I think there's, it's, I think it was not just about strength and weakness. Like, I think, actually, one of the key things that jumps out at me at this, from this story is it's the idea of control. Like, um, and I don't know why, but this was the metaphor that just jumped into my head. Like, who is at the wheel? Who's driving this thing? Who's in control? And I was, I was thinking about Gideon and what, you know, the kind of moral of the story. And this is a, is a very famous passage. We've probably heard it a lot. And sort of the classic understanding, as, as I've just sort of shared, is the idea that he was scared, this guy that he was, he was terrified, he was scared, um, that God speaks courage into him, makes him brave, and he, he becomes this war hero. And yes, ultimately, it's, it's God that does it. But like, that's the kind of the hero narrative of Gideon. He was afraid, and then God met him, and now, now he can go for it and fight battles. And, uh, and we love that because I think we really connect with that as an idea, and, and it's, it's true. But I wonder if actually there was, uh, there was a bit more going on with Gideon. Like, I don't think he was this wobbling, nervous wreck of a man. I think he was, like, quite smart. I think he was quite calculated. I think he was a bit of a survivor. Like, um, even, you know... We think of him cowering in the wine press, but but he's in the wine press getting stuff done. Like the rest of Israel's starving and afraid, and Gideon's worked out a way that you know I can sort this out. I can make something happen here, and so he's he's got himself in the wine press and he's he's doing his thing. 
And then yeah, very famously says, who am I? I'm just the weakest man in the weakest clan. But I was reading a, a commentary, and, and actually, apparently, Gideon is a pretty privileged guy. Like, he was still the oldest son in his family, and so he would have carried a sense of privilege and um, authority and just a sense of knowing who he was that would have come with that in that culture. So he wasn't this sort of weakling kind of insect. Like, actually, I wonder if he's just, you know, he's, he's hedging his bets a little. Like, oh, you've said that, but also, what about this? You know, actually, you know, if we're going to compare, there's probably Gideon over there that might be stronger that you could go and talk to. I don't know. Like, he's sort of, he's kind of hedging his bets a little bit. And then with the Asherah pole, he does it, but he's smart. He does it at night. He's, you know, how can I minimize the risk? How can I manage this in the best way that I can. I know I'm going to do it. God's told me that it's going to, I'm going to do it, and so I will, but he does that. And then finally, even coming back to the, the fleece. So uh, God's confirmed him by fire. He has filled him with his spirit. People have come to him. And then not once, but twice, he, he does what is forbidden in Scripture, which is to test the Lord his God. And God is merciful to him. But it's, it's almost like, he's like, God, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, I, re- I need to be really sure that this is going to work out. Which, again, strikes me as the kind of behavior of someone that, um, that is, is quite controlled. Sort of aware that actually they do, even in a little way, they, they, they can make their mark. They can have a bit of an influence. And so they're going to use as much as what they have in order to be sure of what's coming next. And I, th- I think the great transformation that we get from Judges 6 to Judges 7 is not just that Gideon becomes brave, but that he relinquishes control. And that the Gideon who demanded sign after sign would actually be told to reduce his army to 1% and go into battle waving candles, and he does it without putting up a fight. And, and I, I think that's the journey that he goes on, that I think God is inviting us into, and I think that helps us hold those things together. For me, I, I find this really hard. Like the, um, the phrase that I've found myself using a lot recently is the idea of like managing outcomes. Like how, how do I manage outcomes? Because for me, like so much is just that I, like success and failure is a big deal to me. And so even just in, in little stupid things, like I'll, I want to know that I've done the most that I can to secure success. Even in like going camping, it's like, okay, well, I'll leave it to the last minute so I can look at where the best weather is and so I can take the right tent and I'll know. And it, I mean, it's also good planning, but just that, that sense, of, and it takes up so much brain energy. Probably the most stupid one is, does anyone play fantasy football? Any fantasy football players? Anyone play fantasy NFL? It's actually way better. Um, but you, within that, you do trades. So you have certain people on your team, and other people have other players, and you can trade them. And it's quite fun when you get a trade. It's, it, it's kind of part, of part of the game. But I, I don't anymore. But I would spend like hours at a time sometimes just thinking about how can I make my team better. And I'd go through the, um, the fixtures for all the other guys, and I'd be working out, OK, well, this and this. And, and just almost like this constant barrage of factors that I was weighing from my mind to try and get to the decision. Because I want to be sure that this move that I'm going to make that is of no value whatsoever in life, but has somehow become important to me, is actually going to be successful. And that rush of, yes, when they accept the trade is like, oh, it's amazing. And there's, there's probably 10,000 other examples, but where just, for me, a big part of like, how do I, 
how do I make sure that this thing wins? And for all, maybe you relate to that, but there's probably lots of different ways, I think, that we have control or try and maintain control. It could be always needing to have an exit strategy. Like, I need to know that I can jump off this train at any point, and so I'll, I'll kind of, maybe I'll, I'll hesitate getting involved in something because I just need to know that I can get out the door if I need to. Maybe it's in how you feel like you need to be around people. Like, I must always be on form. I must always be lovable and beautiful and excellent and worthy because actually so much of what I need to make this thing work is that I'm accepted by people. And so I just have to constantly keep up, like put my best foot forward and be lovable and, and beautiful and the best I can be. Maybe it's to do with power. Maybe we actually, we need to be the most powerful person in the room and we need to be able to cut down our rivals at any point if they you know, threaten our supremacy. Maybe we demand perfection from ourselves, from other people around us. You know, maybe we just have to, have to be the one that just does all the hard work, that we are absolutely indispensable because we're, we're the most hardworking. We do it all, like, just give it, give it all to me, I'll do it everything. Like, that can be a form of control. Similarly, like, it was just the need to always, always win. I just have to win. Because that's how I, that's how I need to just be. I just have to win. There's, again, there's probably infinite examples we could think of, but just all those little ways that we like, we try and, and take control of things. But the reality is, we are, we're fragile. We are plain in lots of ways. We are weak. We are very much like the things that Gideon had the candle in, that he smashed and ran with the light towards battle. We are very much like jars of clay. That, you know, actually when they get knocked over, they break. And so much of how we do life, particularly Christian life, because it is so cause-driven, which is amazing because we have this mission, it's like we also have to hold it all together and we have to be in control. But actually, sometimes we break. But what is awesome is that is also our superpower. Because of what happens when we break, it allows us to see what's inside. It allows the light that is inside to come through. Hopefully you know which Bible verse I'm going to next. 2 Corinthians 4. For God said, let there be light in the darkness. He made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We have been filled with the most wonderful treasure, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And actually those times when we seek to um, 
to hold it all together in our own strength, perhaps we are actually denying the ability for the light that God has placed in us to shine out through those cracks in our exterior. And Jesus is just so amazing. Like he is the light, he is the good news. That he looks on you and he looks on me and he delights in us. Despite all our idiosyncrasies, despite all our ambitions and all our hypocrisy and all, all that stuff, he looks on us and he delights in us and he sings over us. And he chooses to use us to, to bring his kingdom to those around us. And we carry this treasure that, that is that God, the God who created the universe, loves me and he loves you and he loves everyone that we meet. That he's got good things for them to step into. And that actually all our fears will be stilled and all our strivings will cease because of who Jesus is. Like that is the treasure that we carry. Not that we're amazing and making it happen, but that God is and that he chooses to use us. So yeah, constantly trying to hold it together, it can be, it can be exhausting mentally, especially, especially when we're trying to do it for God. <laughs> Because how are we ever going to do enough? But actually, we need to, to follow that model of Gideon that, yes, agree with all the things that God has said about us. Grow in strength. Bring all that we have. But ultimately, trust that if God wants to, he can win a battle waving a candle. He can win a battle waving a horn. He is the one that is in control of the outcome. So let's just not waste the energy trying to do his job for him. And I want to end with two quotes. Uh, the first one is from Henry Nguyen, or Nguyen, and the second is from Paul, the apostle. This is the Nguyen one. I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. I'm going to read that again. I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. And then from Paul, we've already referenced it, 2 Corinthians 12. Each time God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. God wants us to bring all the strength that we have. The weaker, the better. Let's pray. If you want to stand, that'd be great. Father God, I thank you so much that you have called each person in this room. You have called us to join you in the extension of your kingdom. You have put specific dreams and visions on our hearts. You're using us to bring life and light to communities and families and systems and structures all over this city. 
And God, would you increase that sense of mission and purpose that we are carrying as a community and as individuals? Lord, and I pray for each one of us that you would strengthen us for that. Lord, I thank you that everything you call us to, you also equip us for. And I pray you would strengthen us all in the room. Give us gifts, spiritual gifts, practical gifts. Give us resources, give us connections, give us the things we need to step more fully into everything you've called us to. Help us believe what you've said about us. But Lord, as well, help us to realize where the real strength lies. Help us to let go. Help us to trust you. Father, thank you that you put your treasures in jars of clay. So, Father, I just I pray that you would give us the courage and the bravery to, to be real with you, to be real with one another. To pull down any walls that we may have erected for safety. And trust that actually our own fully vulnerable selves is enough. It's not just enough, it's everything. It's all you ask us to bring. And you supply the rest. So God, strengthen our call and let us celebrate our weakness. Trusting that you're right in the midst of all of it. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findlife.co.uk or follow us on Instagram. God bless and see you soon.